Hello and welcome back to another episode of Movies, Movies, Movies. We're right in the thick of Sydney Film Festival right now and we have a huge show with a cinematographer, an Australian cinematographer, Ari Wegner, who shot Zola. You want to go somewhere with me? That's my place. So bad. Dear Heavenly Father, we are asking you a special prayer today. We asking you to send us... And Power of the Dog, Jane Campion's new film. It seems the enemy is not what we believe. I hope you like apple pie. Is that my recipe? It is. I can't wait for you to hear this interview. She shares little secrets about the key to cinematography and good filmmaking, which is honestly just go for a swim and take a nap, and talks about the hypermasculinity of camera equipment and their names, which is really cute and funny. I have had a ball at the Sydney Film Festival this year, even though I'm totally exhausted and wrecked. Please text in if you were one of those people that fainted at Titan. I need to know what that experience was. I honestly didn't think people fainted in films anymore. I thought that was kind of like something that was, you know, finished in the 1920s. But we're back in the Roaring Twenties. We're back at the state and it's giving fainting this year and it's giving walkouts. What are you loving at the film festival? What are you hating? Is it giving or is it lukewarm this year? We want to hear from you. Please text in and um, enjoy this interview that we have with Australian cinematographer Ari Wegner. Money, titties, money, titties. From here on out, watch every move this bitch make. Hi, I'm Ari Wegner, cinematographer of Power of the Dog and Zola, playing at Sydney Film Festival. And we're here on Movies, Movies, Movies on FBI Radio. Oh my god, first take wonder. <laughs> oh my god, is Jane Campion like a million takes kind of person? She's like a gut reaction person, whatever that means. So she's got to like feel it before she's going to move on, which is um, sometimes that's take two and sometimes it's later or she does love like a variation. Um, she's not afraid to like change something major and take five kind of thing. There's photos of her out on like the mountains in New Zealand and she looks like such a boss, like such like the deck chair, like director cliche sitting there, like so seriously looking at a monitor. Yeah, there's a, um, I was in New York with them last, a uh, couple of weeks ago now and um, she, they did an amazing film, sh- like a photo shoot with her, which is just like, incredible high fashion I hope the world gets to see it because it's like I don't know full just yeah boss queen whatever whatever you want to call it but just owning being her and it makes me really excited to be um her age actually yeah and be Jane Campion stylish I would just be like what happens when you have lived another kind of 30 years from where I am now and what what kind of uh you certainly don't begin to fade you just like really kind of um I don't know just get to be you without giving giving a damn what anyone thinks (laughs) 
I feel like bogus critics negate cinematography to like diminish a film, especially period dramas, which Zola, I would say, is a period drama as well. Um, 100%. By, by calling it like pretentious or superficial, but I find that style is substance. Can you describe what cinematography does to a film um, in your personal opinion beyond just creating images? Well, for me, cinematography is visual storytelling. I think it's um, it's how you decide to tell the story and you have to, at a certain point, you really have to decide what's in the frame and what's not in the frame. Um, and that's, uh, that's easier said than done because I guess when you're reading a script or even reading a novel, which um, both Zola and Power the Dog are kind of based on an original text, very, very different text, but different text. And when you're reading text on the page, you can kind of imagine you images come to mind but they're not shots they're they're kind of everything um and then when you need to translate that to film you you, you do have to decide specifically what you're what you're seeing and that that's a kind of see as my as my role um and uh i think of course, there's the beauty that's trying to make something beautiful and aesthetically pleasing. Um, and then on the other hand, well, not on the other hand, but actually kind of integrated is, is what I'd call like the information. Um, and that actually takes quite a lot of planning to kind of mesh those two things together so that a shot is... Um, I'd say like world building and that you're learning more about the place and the, and the context um, and then also plot. So you're kind of learning more about what's happening in the story and then also character revealing something about a character and, um, and all the time, not really allowing, not really um, you're all the time hoping that an audience is not going to see any of those decisions. They're just in it. So um, you kind of, Building a, building a journey for someone to go on um, without them feeling like they're being led or kind of um, manipulated, but, but you are in a very respectful kind of way. Were you watching JB and JC's work before the two films or like to try and pick up on their visual cues or did you have like a whole like fresh set of references? Um, I mean, I'd seen... Janixa, for Janixa, this was her second film, Zola, because um, obviously Jane has a kind of whole uh, life's work um, behind her. I mean, Jane could retire tomorrow and still be it. She, she doesn't need to make any more films to be, um, you know, immortalised in film history as a genuine kind of auteur filmmaker. Um, but, yeah, I definitely... I, I would always watch a director's previous work um, before I work with them to either refresh my memory if I knew them before or to discover more about them. Um, and then also it's kind of both, I guess. You you look at their previous work and, and try and maybe see some, some through lines of what interests them and then also start afresh completely because... Um, no one wants to repeat themselves and every um, every script and every new project requires a complete um, refreshing of the mind. And for me as well to kind of forget everything I was trying to do on the previous project, not forget all the lessons, but forget all the kind of 
ideas um, and and try and start from complete neutral and just take your cues just from the script, just from the words on the page in front of you, and then um, what uh, also what the director's interpretation is of that. Um, yeah, so I guess it's both knowing knowing the context from where someone comes, and then also meeting them where they are and and where they want to go from from that point in their life where you cross paths. Was there ever a conversation with Janixa about making all of Zola on an iPhone? <laughs> um, actually, when I came onto the project on Zola, Janixa was already um, one of the kind of uh, I think one of the things she she had as a um, some non-negotiable when she came on the project was that we were going to shoot 16 mil. So that um, that battle had already been won for me because I often try to push that once I arrive. But um, Janixa definitely already decided what format she wanted to shoot on, um, which I love because it's so, I mean, Dollar is about as digital a story as you can come by it's it is like a story about the internet in so many ways um and i'm so glad she went against that with this kind of old school format because it um i don't know i love 16 i i just i love i love what it brings um and yeah i'm i'm so glad that was that was one of her non-negotiables <laughs> Yeah, I feel like 16, though, does have a similar grain to, like, the first iPhone SE. There's, like, a... <laughs> there's, like, this nighttime, like, dribble kind of moment that happens. Well, it is kind of, in many ways, like, a an earlier version of a low resolution. Like, it's kind of the grain's bigger, the, the sensor's smaller. It's... Um, in many ways, like less sensitive, less sharp, but that that's what I love about was it. There any, was there ever a time where you were like, okay, yeah, I love 16 mil, or was it just working with it yourself? I mean, it's kind of my, um, I don't know what you call it, but like my, when I very first, when I, when I started, um, I came to film like super late. I had a really analog childhood in that we didn't, um, we watched a lot of like kind of um, ABC kids kind of like, uh whatever's on tv but we never i wouldn't say we ever watched cinema or we didn't have a v we didn't have a video we didn't have a vhs player or anything so i really discovered cinema like super late into the later end of my teenage years i guess as a, as a art form um beyond like kids films really it's a very like vulnerable <laughs> moment i'm sharing with you but so i guess when i got to um I I love I knew that I did love photography and I loved writing, and so when I decided I wanted to make films and went to film school, 16 mil is where we started. So that was very familiar for me because I'd been um, I was already a real like um, photography head, and at, at that point, digital cameras weren't really a accessible thing for for a teenager. So I was more like in the dark room kind of at high school till the cleaners came and kicked me out um, at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, 16 mil is kind of my, it's where I learned um, how to make films. And I think as well beyond the, just the aesthetic of it, there's also a, a real discipline you have to have because film is finite. Like the, well, the amount of film you have, you're literally counting the feet you have left. So. Um, 
that as well I, I really enjoy in many ways the kind of restriction I actually love restrictions and kind of boxes and rules because it really forces um I don't know, I think it encourages creativity or for me anyway that works a restriction um activates some part of my brain which gets super jazzed by a barrier and a block and a box um so yeah, I, love, I mean, I love 16 for so many reasons, but they're not all, actually, they're not all aesthetic. They're kind of, I don't know, philosophical or, or purely like practical. <laughs> like you have 50 feet left, what are you going to do with it? Um, that kind of thing. Yeah, it feels like you're going to catch like a miracle because you have to. Yeah, and then there's also things that, uh, I mean, I also love like the unexpected that happens on um, film like you you're seeing it and you're hoping you're imagining what it's going to look like, but you can't actually know until, until that moment's like two days ago and there's no way to come back and change anything. Like it, it is what you've done. And the, yeah, the, um, the film is even like a, the sum of your failures and mistakes and there's no like changing that, but that also makes it, I don't know, really unique. They're like the, the rough edges that you can't kind of, file down they're there and that that is what makes the film and I think that's in every department really actually the kind of failures and successes actually make the that's what you create the flavor of what you end up seeing yeah and then when it comes to power of the dog did Netflix sort of go okay you have to shoot with this you have to shoot this frame rate like what was the conversation with Netflix about versus like a24 conversations well, yeah, I guess Netflix are a uh, kind of different entity in that they're a, um, they really have 4K as their as their kind of um, base um, bare minimum um, type of a I don't know what you'd call it. It's it's definitely like a non-negotiable um, to capture 4K. So, and yeah, the the kind of technical specifications are a little bit yeah they're they're pretty set in stone. But um, in many ways, for me, that's uh, is a bit like when when people ask like, what camera we shoot on, or or even what lenses. It's really in the like, I don't know. This may be blasphemous to say as a cinematographer, but but those things, for me, they're not the they're not the big things that you could really tell at the end. They're they're more kind of. They're the tools that you need to um, create something, but I don't know, think of it like if you had a amazing kind of, I don't know, like fashion um, clothing designer, you're probably not gonna ask them like, so what sewing machine do you use? That's that's like such a small factor of what you're gonna see on the runway or, or like a, I don't know, an architect's like, what what program do you use is kind of um it's just the tool to create what you're what you're wanting to create and as long as you know it well enough to use then um it almost becomes invisible like for me it becomes almost part of your mind and body it's just a way to capture um capture the images um and obviously the the better you know it the better you can use it without thinking um and yeah, for me, both those 16 and, and Alexa or digital there, I can feel equally um, 
equally at home in them. Um, and I can do, I think I can, you can kind of do the same things. They look different, but I don't think either one gives you kind of restriction or, or benefit. Um, and those really big questions like, what are the shots going to be? What's the movement? How far are we going to be from the actors? Um, what's the lighting going to look like? What's the locations we choose and mise on sand and all of that, I think has has a that's like the 99% of influence and then the tools kind of the 1% really, I think. Do you think that also, like I always talk to cinematographers and they talk about it as being like a dance and I wondered if there's like a physical flow or training that you do there is a there is a definitely a dance aspect to um, definitely camera operating and, and cinematography. I'd say particularly with handheld and the actors. Um, for me, when I'm doing handheld, I'm I mean I'm about as present as you possibly can be. Like I'm really in the movie, I guess you could say. Um, and and when you're handheld. So you can kind of go anywhere, step step wherever you want and get as close or far away as you want to be. Um, and I really enjoyed those on, on Power of the Dog as well, the, the moments of, um, I guess, like release from formality that, that you see where um, the camera is with um, Benedict's character, Phil, um, mostly in, in the kind of, unguarded moments with him and I really did enjoy that dance we had together um because you're very you're just like so I'm so in tune with another person really like a dance and you're also kind of a weird thing to describe but after a few weeks shooting someone's face and body you're so you know what it's going to look like if you pivot around to that side because you're kind of almost a strange like expert on the landscape of their face and their skin and yeah it's very intimate um experience and yes yeah, definitely definitely a dance it's two people responding to each other um in a very sometimes like a really small space or further away or um but yeah, there's a there's a super strong connection. But um, and weirdly, like we don't really talk about it afterwards. <laughs> just like, maybe too intimate to even acknowledge. It's just like that happened. <laughs> we have a lot of like young aspiring filmmakers who listen to the show, and we always ask questions about our experience dodging industry villains, and we use the term camera bros. Like I personally remember going to afters, and there was like a group on Facebook called like Fight Club and all the camera bros were in it and like would have poker nights that were like gender exclusive and like just like gross. And um, all my girlfriends who work in art department have like horror, horror, horror stories about, you know, like secret radio channels where all the guys will just check out women on set. And I was just wondering if you had any advice on like handling male gatekeepers. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, there's undoubtedly a super masculine undertone to the film industry. I mean, even like the, I don't know, the, even some of the names of the gear, like you have pieces of gear called like weapon and spider and 
um, I don't know what dragon, like, and all the. Um, I hate like, that spider is like a masculine name. Spider, spider is like so cute. Snakes and spiders. Spider is cool. Yeah, sorry, spiders. I'm. I have nothing against spiders, but, but it's trying to like. It's a word that's like somehow trying to intimidate you, um, and even all the like, all of the gear kind of symbols of these like, I don't know. A lot of them have this kind of like weapony kind of war related big strong kind of i don't know like steel and shiny metal and it's i mean it's there's an aggressive undertone to a lot of the um even just the marketing of stuff which is i'm sure very indicative of who they're marketing to um and then you know all the gear bits that you buy like it's all for dudes you know it's like you can't doesn't ever fit you <laughs> um in terms of advice um it's a really hard one actually because i in many ways i feel lucky that i i haven't necessarily i don't have any like direct horror stories of of um latent kind of outward um dark situations but, but then again, when I really zoom out, I mean, I don't know the things that have been said or the opportunities that I haven't been offered because no one's thought of me. Um, um, there's, yeah, there's, there's the upfront aggressive stuff that can happen. And then there's the like down low kind of stuff where you're not on, you're not, you're not even kind of thought about because you're, your gender is like not um, doesn't come to mind when people are thinking of a certain crew role or, or something. Um, I, don't know, I think in many ways it's changing fast, and maybe if anything, it's like the ultimate sign of kind of I don't know rebellion to do nothing, <laughs> like to be yourself and kind of go on your path. And I mean, I look at someone like Jane, who's just such an inspiration, and I feel like she's been the kind of things that she's been tackling in her films and like wanting to talk about it feels like only now the world's coming to terms with those taking interest in in the kind of things that she was like talking about in the 80s you know it's like i don't know find it if anything it would be like find if you can know that there's so many people um that also don't feel like um, but also feel like the disgust at the kind of like hyper masculinity of the film industry and that you're not alone in feeling that. So if you can like gravitate towards those people, then, um, then, uh, do so <laughs> even not, not to say create, create an enclave, but, but kind of, um, there's all kinds of, uh, people that are trying to do do what you're trying to do trying to trying to trying to be creative make films and um the great thing is is this like increasing kind of democratization of, of filmmaking and I mentioned phones earlier and it's maybe like the extreme version but I think I think there's increasing interest in every kind of voice um more and more um and don't don't try and like fit yourself into an industry that's that's a bit gross because 
better to like push it in another direction than attempt to get in somewhere that just feels the wrong town. I um, also know like spending so much time with, oh my god, I live in Tempe, so like these planes are just, I don't know if you know Sydney that well, but one second. It's not the best place to do pre-records from home, but like we can't go in the studio yet. I'm literally the end of my street. <laughs> I walk out the end of my street, I see Ikea. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd go there and disassociate when I'm having a moment. <laughs> Get a hot dog. Um, I know Jcabian fans would love to know any secrets she shared with you about filmmaking. Is there anything she said that like blew your mind? Um, something that blew my mind. I mean, just working with her blew my mind. Um, because I think she's just an inspiration to kind of be around her, her, the way she, I don't know, the way she goes about filmmaking and the way she goes about her life are kind of super integrated. Um, she finds a way to, oh, she finds a way to like surround herself by the people she loves and that, and that understand her, love her or like support um whatever decision she wants to to make even if they wouldn't make that decision or even if they can't 100 percent understand why she would want to do that but kind of fully go there don't don't doubt and and kind of tell her all the reasons why that's difficult but start working on how to how to make it happen and and she manages to have all those people on set like by a process of, I don't know, vetting people or, or taking a chance on someone and, and keep bringing them back. Um, I don't know, like our Steadicam operator, Grant, um, she gave him his first kind of like leg up into the film industry when he was like a kind of awkward, like, I don't know, I want to say teenager um, who'd never been on a film set before. And now he's a Steadicam operator. So kind of... Uh, I don't know, like the most experienced person might not be the best person for the job. You, you need to find someone that is really like going to support you. Um, and then I was so inspired by how vulnerable she is, I guess, um, and vulnerable in every aspect that she, she keeps herself like emotionally vulnerable on set to be in touch with the, the scene, which is, again, like no small feat on a really active film set to be stay in touch with that side of yourself. And then even in something like pre-production where you're um, really being as a director hounded every day for answers to things, to have the courage or the confidence just to say, I don't know, or I don't know yet, not be um, kind of forced into making a decision because you feel the pressure of, of someone asking you, but but to say, well, I'm actually going to need to get some more advice on that because I'm not an expert in cattle or I don't, I don't know how this particular type of architecture should look. I need to, we need to do some research. So I don't, I don't know. Um, and that was actually incredibly empowering and inspiring to, to hear someone like her say, I don't know, or maybe like, oh, I don't know yet. Um, or give me some, let's, let's sleep on it. Give me some time to not, to not kind of, feel like you have to perform the role of someone that knows everything instantly. That's not the best uh, 
that doesn't make the best result. There's no, there's no like medal for um, fastest answer. <laughs> it's more like how how do we make the best film um, and trusting and kind of getting really excited by meeting experts and things and asking their opinions about all kinds of things that of course no one knows about these super niche things that just particular to one project. Um, and then on a really big picture, she's someone who has really taught me that to do good work, it doesn't mean like you just um, push yourself to the absolute limit till you collapse, but actually sometimes the best thing to do is to go for a swim or cook some food or um, have a nap. Um, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a like nerd from way back. And I think when I even like going through high school was so terrified of just, I don't know, failing exams that I just work like cramming all night and just exhaust myself. And that somehow like that, I think that mentality is like, has stayed with me, but seeing someone like Jane really uh, demonstrate the value in knowing that you're exhausted or like you're not getting anywhere that you've like hit a block and that pushing against the block doesn't make it fall down it just like doesn't feel great like why not change something so either go and do something else or mainly like go outside and do something that doesn't require thinking and chances are during that moment you'll come back and the idea if the idea is going to come to you, it's probably not going to come to you by forcing it out. My best thing might be to do is go to sleep. <laughs> also feels like that's like a, that's like a huge shift happening in the industry right now. Like there's so many people talking about the appalling standards of work and then like culminating in the avoidable death of Halnia Hutchins. Sorry. I don't know if I pronounced her name right, but I mean, what are your peers talking about at the moment in terms of work standards? hundred percent. That's like at the forefront I mean, to be honest, people have been talking about it ever since I can, you know, remember, but no one, but not publicly. Like that's pretty much anyone you meet in the film industry. You say, "Oh, how's it going?" And they pretty much the default is like, oh, "I'm so busy, I'm so tired." And yeah, anyway, so um, what's the first shot? <laughs> so everyone's been talking about it, but for some reason, um, no one maybe through exhaustion no one's like get together a group voice to say that that it's not sustainable as a as a kind of lifestyle um and and yeah as we've just seen like the most tragic consequences can also happen people losing their lives whether via an accident on set or driving home or or even having your life fall apart in other ways because you can't sustain your, um, you know, family or, or friend relationships because there's just like not enough hours in the day or you, or you come home so tired that you can't even, you don't even literally have the brain power to respond to a text message. <laughs> it's like, it's so awful. It's like not, it's, I don't know, it's not a life. It's, it's, that's, I think that's what everyone's talking about and everyone's, I do think also COVID has made a, um, did have an impact in that 
for the first time probably in anyone's living memory, definitely mine, um, we all had to stop and there was no FOMO or no thought about what anyone was doing. And once we pushed past the weirdness of not working, everyone had a um, the, the time that we all spent doing not much um, was, uh, I think, transformative for a lot of people. I mean, I feel very lucky that I actually was not, um, had no one close to me impacted and it feels like, I feel so, um, it's just like immense sadness for the amount of people that didn't come through the other side. But I think even, even that as well, just realizing that, you know, life is fragile, life's finite. Um, the people close to you aren't just going to be there always. And um, that life should be more than kind of, life should be more than hoping that, that, that by the, at the end of this job, that's when I'll get to enjoy it. Or at the end of this job, because the end of the job never comes, the jobs just keep coming. And then before you know it, you'd, you're, uh, you know, 40 years have passed. <laughs> Never got to the end of the job. So, yeah, I think it's time. I think it's time for a, for a big change. I really, and I, I think there's finally enough um, collective voice to actually make it happen. Yeah, I feel, I feel hopeful actually that, that we're, we're on the cusp of something changing. This could go on for hours. Um, and that was a really, really nice way to end. Um, thank you so much for talking to me and like taking time out of your like busy post lockdown schedule. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a real pleasure to to chat to you. And yeah, I hope um, I hope anyone's interested can can see Power of the Dog and and Zola at, at Sydney Film Festival. So just like two incredibly different directors, but um, also similar in so many ways, just fearless kind of creative minds who have a story that, that they want to tell and, and use whatever life experience they've had to, to tell it. And I think that when you have that combination of things, like it just, it resonates um, really broadly. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I hope, uh, I hope, uh, I hope people enjoy seeing them on the big screen as well because they actually both have amazing outside the visuals but uh, amazing sound they both have beautiful beautiful sound worlds and soundscapes incredibly different um uh but both yeah um johnny greenwood on power of the dog and mika levy on zola like just two of my favorite just artists in the world as well that um yeah, really worth seeing in a, in a theatre, I think, if you can. I know, I'm like dying for a Mika Levy interview. We've been emailing a little bit, but they're so coy. Like, Come on. <laughs> yeah, um, just... I've never, I've never had a soundtrack. Um, I've never seen a film so different with and without score as Zola. Like, suddenly with that soundtrack, it was as if like, all of the subtext that we'd been trying to get across in the visuals was suddenly like the volume and just the contrast was turned up just like oh 
everything I was trying to say, it is there after all. And just with, you know, just with sound, but with like an amazing score can do that. That last shot and that score of them driving is so huge and so memorable. Yeah, just, uh, I don't know, I have no musical bone in my body, so I have like the most utmost respect, but there's something really magical when images and music in particular go together that feels like, I don't know, levitating or something. <laughs> this podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.